Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome love. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Nancy Fippen Brown, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Good. Nancy, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, Nancy uh, Fippen Brown is the author of Help Thou My Un- Mine Unbelief, a, a book designed to help Latter-day Saints who are struggling with questions, uh, perhaps doubts, and wanting to better understand the ways in which we can understand the evidence that points to the truthfulness of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Nancy, to get us started, would you mind just sharing a, a, a brief bio about yourself so that my listeners can get a feel for who you uh, who you are? Okay, um, let's see. I am uh, 61 years old. I don't know if they needed to know that, but uh, recently retired uh, as a journalist, have a degree in journalism, and worked uh, most of my life for newspapers and magazines, um, uh, had some time in that time working uh, for the church news, and uh, that was a wonderful experience, kind of rubbing shoulders with a lot of the, the church leaders. Um, I'm married uh, to a wonderful man of 12 years. Uh, it's my second marriage, and together we have seven children. That's great, Nancy. I, uh, I want to start off just maybe getting kind of some background uh, on the book, the book Help Thou Mine Unbelief. And uh, again, I know people who try to tackle uh, helping others to lead with faith. And as you and I talked about kind of leading up to this interview, I know that to write a work such as this, there's some personal reasons behind it. And often listeners will try to guess whether somebody had a personal faith struggle themselves or perhaps maybe they were uh, helping a close family member or a, a church friend or somebody deal with these types of issues. Uh, would you mind sharing with us the background that, that made this personal, that, that encouraged you and motivated you to, to write a book like this? Um, yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I have been an active member of the church all my life, born under the covenant. Um, 
except for a, a, about a five-year period in my uh, younger days uh, when I was inactive and experienced some some interesting things in the world. And um, but besides that time, I have been uh, I served a mission, a full-time mission. I was married in the temple to my first husband, raised three wonderful kids in the church. But through all of that. I had times where I just would go up and down in my testimony. And mostly, I mean, I never left, but I always had questions. And for me, it wasn't so much um, the LDS church. Uh, in fact, I felt like if I was not a member of this church, I couldn't really see myself in any other church. I felt that the tenants of the LDS church really had the answers that made the most sense to me. But my problem really was almost more of whether there was really a God. I, I couldn't fathom the whole idea of a god and and all that went with it and so from time to time i would struggle and sometimes the uh, you know the, the the pot would start to boil over and i'd have to work real hard to get the lid back on that pot of belief uh to keep going and it was it's kind of been a struggle throughout my life um but what happened to motivate me to write this book is about 18 months ago, my father passed away. Uh, he was 88 and just of, of old age, basically. But the effect that it had on my mother, who has been a lifelong active member, really shook my world. Um, she missed him so much, and still does, but it was such a trial for her, she started to wonder if the church was really true, in that, was there a God? Would she actually see my father again? Is there life after death? And I would sit for hours trying to help assuage her fears and and give her some evidential information that there really was a God and there was life after death. But I wasn't equipped to do that. I had my own questions. I wanted to know if I would see my dad again. I missed him too. And so with that was born this desire within me to use my journalistic background to to dig and search, research, and find answers to do just that. And I went on this quest. I was up. I started at the wee hours of the morning at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes and worked way into midnight almost every day for a year. I was so um, motivated, driven, really, to find answers for my mother and for myself. And the result of that is this book we're talking about. Excellent, excellent. I, I like hearing that. And I, I think your book really tackles really well uh, some of the false assumptions and maybe beliefs we think we have to hold, but in realizing there's a lot more inherent flexibility in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I just found your book to be really enlightening. And uh, there's lots of sections of the book. It was, a, it was a long book, but each page was great. And obviously, just because of the constraints of time, we're going to pick out uh, a few sections and talk about them. But I, I just want the listeners to be aware that beyond the things we talk about, the scope of our discussion, this book is jam-packed full of other things that would be extremely extremely helpful uh, to especially the those of you who are listening who uh, are having doubts or having questions and, and kind of struggling with um, making the, your faith work or to lead with faith. I want to start off talking about near-death experiences. It was one of the first sections that, that uh, I knew I wanted to ask you about in the interview because I find near-death experiences interesting. I think a lot of us do. My wife, whenever she goes to the library, she's always picking up a book on uh, on NDEs. And the first thing that caught my eye was a hilarious quote. At least to me, I thought it was funny. Uh, you speak of an experience an atheist had. His name was uh, A.J. Ayer. And essentially, he uh, ends up choking on some food. And 
and almost dies. He has, or I should say he does die. He has a near-death experience. And he's a, I guess a well-known atheist. When he comes back to and he's, he's resuscitated, um, he obviously has his whole kind of, ex- his own way of seeing life in the hereafter is kind of changed. And the quote that caught my mind, it says that, and this was kind of describing it and then quoting it, it said, during that time, he said he saw a red light for governing the universe in some barrier he crossed, like the river Styx. And then he said of the experience that it weakened my conviction that death would be the end of me, though I continue to hope it will be. And I found that amusing. Here's here's someone who doesn't believe in the other side. All of a sudden he has an experience that uh, that kind of shows him that there is something going on beyond this life, and yet he still wants to push that away. What was your experience or in this research? What were your thoughts as you came across near-death experiences that, uh, that others had had, especially atheists, and some of the things that uh, they commented about? Um, yeah, I, this was one of my favorite chapters as well. I've always been interested in this topic and, um, I, I was amazed at, at the kinds and numbers of people, uh, who have near-death experiences. In fact, we're told, uh, those who research this have estimated that 20% of the world's population in every corner of the world, um, have had an NDE. There's even, um, Groups and organizations uh, of people who have had them who get together and share and so forth. It's it's quite a big thing, um, and so it because of that, it's no longer considered a fringe science uh, among scholars and scientists who may study this because the sheer numbers of people who are having them uh, says it's it, it it should capture our attention. But yeah, uh, it it knows no bounds. Atheists, uh, uh, by the scores, have these kinds of experiences as well, and they're out there. Uh, And I agree too. This AJ Ayer was very interesting. His reaction to it, he still didn't. He still hoped it wasn't true. Hanging on, hanging on to your false beliefs to the bitter end, I guess. But. but yeah, children have have them, little kids, even ones that are remembering an experience during their birth, which is kind of mind-blowing. Um, the blind, uh, who have been congenitally blind from birth, never have seen anything, have a near-death experience where they're actually visualizing, seeing for themselves the same things that other people who have these NDEs are seeing. Um, and, and it's just mind-blowing to me. Um, there's been experiences where there's a story where one lady uh, had a near-death experience. She was in the hospital, and while she was out of her body, uh, met up with her sister, who was also a spirit at that point. But she had known her sister to still be alive. And so when she did come back from the NDE, she, she mentioned that and said, I, I conversed with my sister. What, what do you make of that? Well, the family didn't want to tell her. They didn't want to upset her. But this sister had actually died uh, just the same time, basically, that she had, and um, and they were able to commune with one another. So if, if this isn't evidence, if this book is about evidence of God in an afterlife, I don't know what is. Right, right. And uh, I always find it interesting, when we talk about near-death experiences, it does seem like the overwhelming data on these is that individuals, when they see others on the other side, they are seeing people who have passed before. And you would think that if this is a, a game that the mind is playing, that I would be just as likely to see my living parents as I would my deceased grandparents. Uh, but as as you're probably well aware, almost to a T, the, the experiences people are having are with those who are deceased. Yeah, very true. 
um, and and for various reasons. And and it's also not just family members, but friends as well. And it's usually someone that they know, although it's not always the case. Um, they talk about uh, a, a being of light that comes to escort them into the spirit world. And um, a lot of times, people, depending on what your experience is in life, will interpret who who this person is or or the things that they're seeing based on um their own religious beliefs in this life uh because that's how they understand things that's how they interpret what's happening to them and um uh so so but still all the elements that they all describe are very much similar and all of them um most of what they describe are right along with the LDS tenets and beliefs too Right. I know that my grandfather, who I would, I would describe as an atheist, he, the only thing he ever had to say about God was, was bad things when bad things were happening. And he, and he didn't want a religious funeral and he wasn't interested in, in religion at all. He ended up having brain cancer in his, uh, his late seventies. And about, uh, four days before he passed away, uh, he pulled my, my grandmother aside and said, don't tell anybody. Of course, my grandmother is the biggest gossiper in the world. And so she told everybody. But but he asked her, said, don't tell anybody. But I just saw my brother Kenny. And the interesting thing was his brother had passed away when he was 19 years old from a car accident, like 50-something years earlier. Uh, and so quite an experience for him. The the one thing I th- want to throw out there, I, I don't know that you, know, you have anything necessarily to, to say to this, but one thought I had, and it's always bewildered me, as we want to try and get to the bottom of these near-death experiences, I've often wondered why in the emergency rooms of some big hospitals, they haven't stuck some lettering on top of a tall cabinet so that some of these, I know some people when they have near, uh, near-death near experiences, they talk about being up in the ceiling and looking down at all that's going on. And it would be easy at that point for that person to come to and say, hey, while I was up there on top of the cabinet, you had a wording that said you aren't dead, you know, something like that. And I just wonder why we don't do more things like that to try to get to the bottom of it and, and provide, in a sense, more evidence of it. I agree. Um, I guess maybe when they're in the throes of trying to save somebody's life and, and you don't always know, you know, can't plan ahead for these things. But, yeah, I can see putting something uh, there. But but the interesting thing is is that these people, when they have these experiences in the hospital room or maybe at an accident site, you know, of a car accident or something, they come back and they can describe uh, what everybody was wearing, what the how the procedures took took place. Um, in fact, there was one gal, a researcher, who who actually um, did a study on that, and and they kind of did a placebo, uh, having people describe who didn't have a near-death experience, see if they could describe what was going on, even though they were in the hospital and had, you know, were in the ER uh, with, with some kind of procedure but didn't claim to have had a near-death experience, if they could describe some of what was going on in the room uh, as compared to the descriptions of those who had near-death experiences. And they couldn't, they couldn't even begin to state anything. They could guess, but they'd had no idea, whereas those with an NDE could describe conversations. They could... They, you know, if somebody said something about, oh, my wife, uh, you know, is going to have such and such for dinner tonight, and they, they said that verbally, this person who had the NDE would parrot that back to them. So the evidence is, is very strong uh, that these things are actually taking place. Right, that there's some level of consciousness. I uh, I wanted to ask you this. There's a quote in your book. I want to read it, and then I want to ask you kind of a follow-up question. And uh, it says this. It says, we learn that faith is the assurance which men have of the existence of things which they have not seen, and the principle of action in all intelligent beings. 
And then it says, he said further, faith is the moving cause of all action in, in intelligent beings. And as faith is the moving cause of all action in temporal concerns, so it is in the spiritual. But faith is not only the principle of action, but of power also in all intelligent beings, whether in heaven or on earth. Faith, then, is the first great governing principle, which has power, dominion, and authority over all things. By it, they exist. By it, they are upheld. By it, they are changed. Or by it, they remain agreeable to the will of God. And I guess I'll stop there. The uh, This was a quote from, I believe, Joseph Smith. And referring to this, here's my thought. I think often in the church, we have this culture of of knowing, of even in our testimony meeting, standing up and saying so. There's very little room in our culture for someone to say, I only hope that, or I don't know it, but I believe it, or um, I believe it because I feel it, but intellectually I struggle sometimes. There's There's almost this lack of... I don't know if it's tolerance necessarily, but we certainly culturally have made knowing really the only acceptable uh, vantage point in which to tackle faith. How do we go about kind of changing that? How do we go about uh, fixing that so that our culture is much more welcoming of questions? And I think that that question uh, certainly uh, can be said of a lot of things within our culture. I know that uh, sometimes you sit in Sunday school class and, and it's like you may have a a thought or or something that maybe goes beyond the mainstream acceptance or at least perceived acceptance within the culture, uh, and you sit quietly and you don't say it because of that desire to not ruffle feathers or stir the pot or whatever, and and to be accepted, you you know, and so yes, this this thing of knowing um, it can be difficult because uh, a lot of people don't know; they just flat out don't know. They they want to know, they want to believe, and they keep going, and that is certainly an exercise of faith. Um, but they they can't say that. However, on the other spectrum, I do believe that people can know that God lives and that the church is true. I think they can use that word know on a spiritual level. I think you can have a spiritual knowledge because I think our our intellect and our spirits maybe know things differently. Um, I think we, we tend to use the word know in terms of, um, you know, knowledge like you would gain from empirical evidence that science uses to prove something in the physical world. But maybe we just need to change uh, a little of the definition. I think there's a difference between knowing spiritually and knowing empirically. And uh, and so when people stand up and say, I know, it's okay. I don't doubt that. I, I think they, they would, if knowing, if a definition for knowing is, is that you feel so strongly about something you would die for it, um, and I believe that then they, then they can use that word. But you're right that not everybody can even say that. They're not there yet. I believe this is true. And how to change the culture, I think, is one step at a time where people like us uh, who need to speak out, you know, uh, need to say a little more about this and say it's really okay if you don't know. It's really okay if you just believe. The main thing is that you keep coming, you keep trying, and and eventually, hopefully, that belief will turn to knowledge. I like that. The uh, the thought I have as you're, as you're saying that, it's twofold, and I'm glad you hit on it that way, because I think it separates this dual issue. One is that a lot of people who have doubts or who are struggling with their faith will go into a testimony meeting, and they just can't stand anybody using the word no. And I think those individuals have to move past that and recognize that, that there are people in the church who have knowledge, 
of gospel principles on a spiritual level, and it's not up to us to decide which individuals really do know and which ones don't. It's it's something they need to be permitted to have. The other side of the coin, which is what I'm kind of trying to get at without making the first one okay, is when we have when we go to a testimony meeting, for instance, I'll just use myself as an example. When I stand up there, I have no problem saying certain things that I know. I know God lives. I know Jesus is the Christ. I know he's made an atonement for all mankind. I know the Book of Mormon brings me closer to Heavenly Father as I read it. And as I talk about other principles, though, that knowledge, in a sense, disappears. And now I'm now I'm down to a different type of faith where I believe or I hope. And I, I just hope that, like you say, people like you and me speaking out makes it more comfortable that when someone stands up in testimony meeting, they don't have to stop after just a two or three or four or five things they know. Rather, they can also share the things they hope in and the things they believe in and word it just like that as well. And that, that hopefully we can get to a point where that's not uncomfortable for them. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, but people have to start doing that. They have to start standing up and just saying it that way. Say, I, I don't know this, but I really believe it and I hope it. And I think if enough people start to do that, it'll catch on and it'll be okay to do. There, you guys have gotten your first challenge, which is to uh, to begin to to say those kinds of things. I know in my ward I do. Sometimes I'll stand up and say there's things I know, things I believe, and things I hope in, and let me share them with you. Um, so I hope, listeners, that uh, you're paying attention, and, and uh, as you go into uh, your testimony meetings and other places where you have a chance to bear testimony, uh, you can do a great service in trying to make those other words just as acceptable uh, as we exercise faith. I appreciate that. All right, so... In the book, you talk about how optimism builds faith, and I absolutely 100% agree. My question would be is, how can we have optimism in the midst of our entire paradigm at times crashing for those of us who have had a major faith struggle where the whole shelf comes down? Uh, What are some thoughts you've got on how we can be optimistic? Because I completely agree with you. If we can find a way to tap into that optimism, uh, faith can almost always be an option that lays ahead. Okay, I'm going to... Answer that, but back up for just a minute um, to preface something. The quote you read from Joseph Smith on faith, um, I think we need to understand what faith is uh, and then how optimism plays into building that faith, is if that's okay. Um, faith, uh, based on what I could see the, through that quote from Joseph Smith, and here's another quote uh, from him. He said, the whole visible creation as it now exists is the effect of faith. It was faith by which it was framed, and it is by the power of faith that it continues in its organized form, and by which the planets move round their orbits and sparkle forth their glory. So faith just isn't an idea, or, or I mean a belief in an idea, or a person, or a deity. It's a living, breathing force. It's a power that creates and propels literally every good thing. It's what was used to create the world, to create the universe. It's what continues uh, now. For, that's what God uses to run things. It is by the power of his faith. And so so this is something we need to, to really grasp, um, how, how important it is to exercise our faith. Um, and so, and to, to increase it. And so one way to do that, if we're ever to become, have the same godly power that God has, which is really our ultimate goal, it is through faith that we exercise that power. That is the power. So how do we move there? How do we get closer to that? One way is through optimism. It's, it's the thoughts that we think often, um, that helps fuel us to move towards something good, to accomplish something good. So 
Researchers call positive thinking dispositional optimism and have linked it to everything from, you know, decreased feelings of loneliness to increased uh, pain tolerance. So optimism has been associated with uh, better health for patients that are recovering from all kinds of things, uh, illnesses and diseases. Uh, they also have better coping strategies and are good problem solvers, and they tend to accept reality the way it is and be able to move on uh, from there. Uh, anyway, I quote a lot of studies and, and different things that, that talks about optimism and what it can do. And if it'll do, if they've connected it to physical things, uh, like, you know, reducing the risk of death even, uh, and from cardiovascular problems and, uh, and increased lifespan, that sort of thing. If it'll do that to our physical bodies, imagine what it'll do to our spirits, uh, and what we can accomplish, the power that we can gain through our thoughts, and that would be optimistic thoughts, really is a huge first step toward getting that same power that God has. Excellent. I uh, I want to f- go into now talking a little bit about uh, a section of your book that talks about how we interpret Scripture and maybe how we interpret ideas within the church. And for me, this is the section I spend the most time in on my podcast, which is to essentially kind of hit head on the assumptions we make within the gospel and then encourage people when they're struggling to dive back into the sources and to find out really how different they can be rather than thinking they have to fit a certain mold or, or you know, fit a certain box uh, of what Mormonism is defined of as they understand it. And uh, to start this off, I mean, you talk about several subjects here, and we'll try to hit at least briefly on each of these. Uh, but the figurative and literal sense of some of the, the scriptural stories. And so maybe for those who are listening, uh, in regards to the first one you tackle, which is the Adam and Eve, uh, in the Garden of Eden and, and maybe attaching to that the creation story, what are your thoughts on what most Latter-day Saints think has to be the way in which they frame those stories and then the reality of what flexibility we have? Um, yeah, I, I know for me personally, I always struggled with, um, uh, again, Sunday school seminary stories where these, these Bible, um, stories were brought up and they were brought up as being literal, uh, that they actually happened as recorded in the scriptures, even though it made no sense to me, or a lot of it made no sense to me, uh, if you look at it literally. And so that was really a big deal for me too when I started to delve into some of these topics to realize, you know what? They don't have to, they're not necessarily literal. And it's okay, you can still be a good member of the church if you, if you look at what the message is that's being projected, as opposed to that the actual event occurred exactly the way it says in scripture. Um, for instance, um, yeah, you mentioned Adam and Eve. There's also, uh, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel. Uh, some of these things, are always uh, can be problematic for people as they as they read through them. But even church leaders have agreed that many aspects of these stories are figurative or allegorical. And I list in my book several uh, references to prophets who have mentioned certain aspects of these stories that are figurative. Uh, if, if that's important to you to, to know that. Um, There is room in Mormonism for a figurative interpretation of these stories, or at least in part, take the story of Noah. That one was so hard for me to accept as literal uh, because, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, So I investigated this topic, and what I discovered is that common to all ancient texts, not just the Bible, but all ancient texts, 
is what Bible scholars call etiological legends, which are stories and myths that are used to help explain, number one, how something came to be, but also, more importantly, um, that it contains a moral teaching for us. And this is something, and I mentioned this in the book, some scholarship studies on this, and this is what they found. These etiological legends are always rich in symbolism, exaggerations of a real event, and they include sketchy understandings of the facts. This is typical of these legends. It's also true that ancient societies and their prophets wrote down their stories according to their own understanding of the world around them. So with this in mind, many scholars believe the flood, while real, was actually limited to a very local area rather than covering the whole planet. Understanding the meaning of certain Hebrew words, uh, which I talk about, uh, bears this out and also indicates that Noah most likely took two of every domesticated animal and fowl to be used for food and clothing during their, their time on the ark, rather than literally every living creature, including carnivores, which I could never quite understand how that would work. So that's just one example. But it, but this, this etiological legend applies to a lot of those stories that we read in the Bible. Right. And, and that's important. And most people, when they run into a struggle of their faith, they kind of make it out to be an either or paradigm. In other words, either the flood covered the whole earth or the church lied to me and the church isn't true. And, or no, and, and then the other, you know, step there, if you've decided that the flood is not a global flood, and you say that's just impossible, then you just throw the entire Noah story out. But as you're pointing out, there is truth behind these stories. And so to walk away and say simply because the creation story or the garden story didn't happen in the exact literal sense in which the scriptures place it doesn't mean there wasn't an Adam and an Eve. The the fact that the flood is not a global flood, again, if that's the conclusion you you come to, that doesn't mean there wasn't a Noah or that he didn't build a ship or that there wasn't rain enough that his boat was needed to to float on whatever body of water it was. And I think you're you're making an important point, which is that we need to hold on to the truth, not just, again, throw the baby out with the bathwater, which would be the cliche I think people would kind of see in this. It becomes way too easy to make it all or nothing, but in reality, in the midst of throwing out some things that don't work, there's still a lot there that's true and can be held on to. Well, and, and this is particularly true of the story of, of the Garden of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Um, it is rich in symbolism. I would say, uh, yes, it did occur. You know, there was an Adam and Eve, there was a Garden of Eden, and, and the story uh, did occur. But so much of what's in it is is symbolic. And when you start taking, trying to, to look at it, everything is literal, that's when it kind of blows your mind and makes you just back away. But if we could look at all of these stories for this other part that uh, these legends were, were set out to do, and that is to teach something moral, teach us something, um, you know, we could go a long way to getting more out of these things than what we tend to do now, uh, which some people just throw them out, like you said. I want to follow that up with kind of talking about the same idea and kind of use a quote that you inserted here into the book. Uh, You talked about a couple of scholars, uh, Keith Baso and I think Bear Tolkien, I'm going to guess that's how they're pronounced, that they suggest, as you point out in etiological legends, that they're rich in symbolism, they're passed on primarily for their moral content and to serve as reminders of that uh, teaching to those who know the stories. Uh, the Bible is rich in such narratives. Uh, and then there's this quote here. It says, If we want to recover the original meaning and purpose of biblical stories, 
with etological motives, it is probably best not to discount the story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden as a morally insignificant tale of origins. Rather, every time we see a snake in all its slitherly, legless glory, we might be prompted to remember the importance of resisting temptation and not seeking to thwart the plans of God. And I think that just speaks to the heart of it, which is don't throw everything out. If if something can be held on to, hold on to it and, and try to work in that that area of grayness and that complexity and just figure out that you don't have to let it all go. Yeah, I love that quote too. I think it, it sums it up well. You know, that's that's the whole reason for these stories. Um, and we have to remember too that anciently, you know, these there's generations upon genera four thousand years of generations of people recording these stories and passing them on and and using their own culture uh, to uh, you know add their slant on them and so forth. And I think it was uh, one of the apostles I quoted in here. I can't remember now. Uh, said it's it's a miracle in and of itself that we even have the Bible when you think about that. So so we have to realize that. Uh, not everything in it is literal, and it's okay. You can still be a good member of the church if you look at it as more allegorical and, fi- and figurative, as long as you take away from it the moral teaching that it was meant that it, that's in it, and that you were meant to take. Yeah, absolutely. In interpreting scripture, especially early stories in the Bible, and recognizing their their being literal or figurative, we probably also ought to touch on ideas within science. And here's what I'm thinking. I know if I go into my ward of a hundred and say thirty active Latter day Saints, and I were to pose to them, not necessarily whether it's true or false, but just simply whether they believe it's the doctrine of the church and that we need to believe it. If I were to ask, for instance, is evolution being wrong a doctrine of the church? And I think a large chunk of members would raise their hand. And if I were to ask, you know, is the earth 6,000 years old and is that doctrinal? And I think a large chunk of members would raise their hand. Maybe you can help us on this idea as well. What what kind of flexibility do we have on these kinds of subjects? Yeah, um, and and this is kind of where I started in the book because this is where I my mind always goes to is science and how much of this is is in uh, uh, goes along with with Mormonism. And I really think that because. There is no stated church doctrine that I could find on either of these theories, the Big Bang or evolution. Um, we basically are free to believe whatever we want as long as it builds our faith. In fact, that's the way I've heard it through um, teachers at BYU. This is how they, because they, they teach evolution. They have to teach all of those things. And because there is no church doctrine specifically on those things, there's plenty of opinion, and you can find all kinds of uh, quotes from, from prophets and apostles uh, of their opinion on it. But David O. McKay had to come right out and say that um, we don't know. We just don't know, and therefore, you know, we're, we're not going to make a statement on it one way or the other. So, so if you believe in evolution, and I know a lot of people do, and you're right, there's a lot of people who don't. In fact, that's probably going to be one of the biggest sticking points of this book for people. Um, if you don't believe in it, in those kinds of scientific theories and really flat-out discoveries, and there's enough science behind them that that you know we need to to give it careful consideration, but. Because there's no stated church doctrine, members should feel that it's okay to believe those things and still be good, strong members of the church. It's okay. As long as we believe in those theories uh, with the caveat that God 
was a part of it. Um, if we believe in the Big Bang that uh, the universe was created out of nothing, uh, then then the, that's not going to be in harmony with Mormonism because we know that there never was a time when nothing existed. There was always something. And, and so we have to put God in the equation. And as long as we do that, we're okay to believe in those things. Yeah, and I would, I would just throw in there that if you belong to a ward, and I'll just be frank, my ward is in many ways, uh, used to be this way. It was made up of a lot of, uh, members who had been in the church a lot of years and had kind of created some lines in the sand that really didn't belong. And, and so I was kind of taught that evolution had to be wrong. Otherwise, if it, if I was to disagree with that, I wasn't really, uh, towing the line of the church. Uh, doctrine in regards to age of the earth and other scientific ideas, they had kind of drawn these lines. And I would simply say to everybody listening, if you're in one of those wards, please know that if you go back and dig into what the first presidency has written officially, if you look at responses, as, as you pointed out, Nancy, David O. McKay responding to somebody who had written him, that the brethren are pretty clear that yes, while you'll find their opinions on those matters uh, throughout church history, You'll also find several times where they're speaking in an official capacity and they essentially say we have no doctrine one way or the other on these issues and people are free to believe either way. So, so don't leave the church over feeling like the beliefs you hold don't fit, uh, into what you think is the church doctrine. At the end of the day, you've got to dig a little further. And if you do, you'll find there's some room there. So thank you for that. There's a, uh, there's a section in your book where you, uh, you try to cover uh, how many people are going to be exalted? And I know there's a couple books at Deseret Book that tackle this subject uh, kind of on its own. Um, I'm a big fan of Brad Wilcox, who uh, who talks a lot about grace and really poses the judgment of Christ as this this opportunity that for anyone who's willing to keep progressing, that there's always the opportunity to keep doing so. And uh, I found this section quite interesting as you as you wrote about this. What were your thoughts uh, going into and, and maybe as you kind of did some research on uh, how many will be exalted? Um, okay. I think we as Mormons um, tend to put too many of our eggs, so to speak, in this earth life basket when the real setting for growth um, toward exaltation really might be occurring in the next life. And again, a lot of this is my take on what I've researched and read, and not everybody's going to look at it quite the same way. But I think God has an eternity to help us grow into to being celestial beings. This earth life is a snap of the fingers compared to what lies ahead. And I wonder if one of the most important things we were to accomplish here is to gain that body so that we could experience the things that you can only experience with a body. Prophets have said for years that very few will not accept the gospel in the spirit world. And I've listed all kinds of quotes from them. And, and yet, because we also hear things like straight is the gate and narrow is the way to exaltation and few there be that find it, we think the numbers are going to be few, or at least certainly, you know, we're all in danger of being part of that group. Um, but I've heard it said that we should include this caveat in that particular statement, few there be that find it in this life. We don't know why some who qualify for automatic exaltation, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have to endure a lot of what most of us do, are spared the trials of life. But it seems clear that God did create a plan of salvation, a plan over which we all shouted for joy, actually, 
um, that he knew would ultimately damn the progression of most of his children. I don't see how he would do that and why we would be all excited about it. His plan would save the vastly greater portion of his children, thus frustrating the work of Satan. That's the plan, and we, we've we got to, I mean, I know that justice can't rob mercy, but sometimes I wonder if we concentrate so much on the justice that we forget about the mercy. Right, and, and maybe to kind of go back and talk about this point as well as the last one we talked about. The interesting thing is we have discussions like this and as we as we look into what's been said by church leaders, again pointing this out, we realize there's just a lot more differing ideas which then leads to opportunities to to choose to see the idea differently based on which quotes uh, you look at the way in which the Spirit speaks to you and the way in which you understand truth. And on the last issue which, issue, which we talked about, which was interpreting Scripture and being figurative or allegorical or looking at it literally, um, I interviewed Jim McConkie, who's the nephew of Bruce R. McConkie, and he found a really cool Brigham Young quote. And in that quote, essentially, Brigham Young asked a minister of another faith, he said, do you believe the Bible? And the minister said, every word of it. And Brigham Young said, well, then you're a bigger believer than I am. And I think quotes like that are important because it shows that even in the early history of the church, the church leaders realized that things were not as black and white as we sometimes paint them today in our culture. And I want to follow that up with another Brigham Young quote, which you include in the book, which speaks to this issue as we're talking about those who will be saved. It says, Brigham Young also explained, if people are not saved, it is because they are not disposed to be saved. And then it says, Apostle George Teasdale concurred when he said, straight is the way and narrow is the path that leadeth leadeth to exaltations and few there be that find it. Why? Because they do not want it. And so I've always taken the position as I look, look at these early comments and these quotes from leaders, I've always taken the idea, and, and I, people, again, are welcome to disagree. As you point out, we're all welcome to have various views on these things, but my own personal view is that anybody who's willing to press forward with steadfastness, no matter how slow that progress is, or how outwardly we see it in this life, there's room for them on the other side, in my mind. I agree. Totally. Totally. And and I think um, I, I've got, I have a girlfriend who is is so good. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. She gives service. She does so much good for people around her. She's getting ready to go on a mission with her husband now. And she has struggled about whether she's good enough and whether she will actually make it. And, and, um, and I think, I don't think it's very healthy for us to live our lives like that. You know, I mean, it, you don't want to take the opposite stand either and say, oh yeah, well, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to make it. Um, there's work to be done and, and so forth. But this, this this whole eternal progression thing, uh, it's it's eternal. It doesn't all need to happen in this life. And if you are of the disposition, if if you want to be with God, if you want what exaltation means, even if you're not there now, even if you've left the church at some point and die out of the church, if you still are of a disposition somewhere along the line that you want that, then the truth when it's taught to you will will resonate and you will have your chance. That, that's that's great. Like I pointed out earlier, Brad Wilcox in his talk, His Grace is Sufficient. Is that a talk you've ever heard? Um, I can't nail it, but I'm sure I have. Okay. He, uh, he mentions in there when we go to the judgment bar, he says, the way I used to see it, there was Jesus standing with a clipboard. And uh, we get to the judgment bar, and he looks us in the eye and says, "Up, oh, you missed it by two points." Uh-huh. And and but he says, the older I get, and the more experience I have, he says, I can picture Jesus standing there and pleading, "Please stay and use my atonement." 
And I think often that's it. It's going to be a choice for us. Do we want to put the work in? Do we want to press forward? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to roll up our sleeves and to repent and to work past things? And as you point out, anybody who has that disposition, uh, you and I can agree. And again, others can disagree. I think there's that room in the gospel. But uh, as you and I have spoken about, and I clearly agree that there's room for those folks. In fact, you know, I just look at so many people around me who maybe not members of the church or maybe they're inactive members of the church, but they're just so good. They're good people. I just can't imagine that those people, because they don't, maybe they rejected the gospel in this life um, for whatever reasons uh, uh, in life that made it difficult for them to continue living it, but if they're good, good people, I just don't see that they're just going to be left by the wayside because they missed a couple of checklists on on that clipboard <laughs> that you mentioned. Um, I, I just don't see it. I, I don't think our Father in Heaven is that kind of God. Yeah, me either. I, I agree with you. The uh, the next point I wanted to talk about, you have a section on wayward children. This was a really, it was really kind of neat that I came across uh, your book reading it at the time I did, because just prior to reading this section, I was kind of diving myself into some some old quotes from Joseph Fielding Smith and Joseph F. Smith and, and other church leaders that spoke about wayward children and talked about the the opportunity they have even if it seems like in this life that they are they are separating themselves from what we think are the the necessary points to to get back to father in heaven and and this is where i'm going to be maybe a little tricky i don't i don't want to i don't want to throw you under the bus but i wanted to get your thoughts because i i kind of see it the way you wrote about but i know elder bednar talked about this in the uh march uh, of this past uh, two issues ago in the enzyme and he talked about wayward children and he talked about uh, there the quotes early on in church history that can be kind of conflicting as you talked about earlier with justice and mercy um, your thoughts maybe after reading that article and and on the ideas you've got on wayward children and maybe how to reconcile some of that sure um i i feel like when i read uh, elder bednar's article uh, that we're in perfect sync when it comes right down to it. Um, God, promises God made to the worthy parents of a wayward child indicate if those children pay their debt to justice and suffer for their sins, they may yet have the blessings of exaltation. And that's pretty much uh, what the bottom line was to Elder Bednar's um, statement. I believe that because these children of the covenant uh, were given certain promises and blessings because of that, just as the Abrahamic covenant uh, was given to their his posterity, and w- of which we continue to be, that God's going to pay a lot of attention to us. He's going to, to really reach out to try and help us and rejuvenate those uh, innate juices that we we contain as uh, members of the covenant. And and that's I think part of what we talk about in terms of blessings from the parent worthy parents to the child. It's just something in their in their uh, spirits. Um, I was going to say in their genes, but that's probably not the case. It's something in their spirits that will will help to bring them back, help them to recognize. Um, I think it's it's not a good idea for us for anybody to interpret some of the things that we read in the scriptures and that some of the prophets have said in terms of whether these wayward children have lost their chance, they had the one chance in this life and that's it, 
I think that's kind of putting us in the judgment seat, uh, because that really is a, a judgment only God and Christ can make, uh, as to how far they went and if they went too far and can't come back. And that's why I brought up earlier, I know so many good people who are, are inactive from the church, but they live better lives sometimes than, than, than those of us who should, should know better based on, uh, having a knowledge of the truth. Um, I can't imagine that, that their chance, they've had their chance and that's it. I just can't imagine it. So when Elder Bednar said that they still have to pay their debt to justice and suffer for their sins, um, I agree with that. They, that may happen in the next life as they're being retaught and counseled about the gospel and as it starts to ring true for them and they want it because they have those spiritual juices flowing through their veins as covenant uh, members of the, under the covenant. It reminds me, uh, Nancy, it reminds me of David, King David. And I look at him. Here's this righteous man that God selects to be his mouthpiece. He becomes the king. He, he does all these, you know, great things. And then, and then obviously succumbs to, uh, some temptation and, and the lust of his heart. And God seems to, at that point, say, look, you, you blew it. You've lost your chance. And then we have in the Old Testament, in uh, in Psalms, David essentially pleading for forgiveness. And then we have this blessing of modern scripture written in this dispensation, which is extent, essentially says that that David at some point shall be rescued from from where he's at, where that you know that punishment that we want to say is everlasting, that he'll someday have some glory. And I think that speaks to what we're talking about, which is that that we never should make a judgment call and discount the atonement of Jesus Christ and how far it can reach and to cut off anyone from from having that or assuming they don't. Yeah, I, I think we're playing God when we do that. And yeah, I mean, there's a risk. There's no doubt uh, anybody who, who walks away from the church having had, had it at one time, and if they really had it, if they really believed it, then then certainly there's a risk. But but even then, I I wonder, as long as they're willing to pay the price, uh, and in the next life, that could mean a long time where they have to go without some of the blessings uh, of the gospel uh, as they work through their repentance and so forth. But um, I I believe that there'll be another chance for for most. Yep, yep. As long as they're willing to take it, I agree. So I want to talk about now in your in your book, chapter eleven. I thought this title was really creative, and I think it speaks at the heart of this issue. And so the title is "Help for the Doubting Thomas." And I want to read a, a little uh, a little quote in here that uh, that you wrote. It says, "This skeptical reaction saddled him for millennia with the unflattering label Doubting Thomas." It's a characterization that unfairly implies that something was wrong with him or that he was somehow lesser than the other disciples. It branded him, and by extension, all others whose faith may need a little help as being deficient, lacking, or even rebellious. Um, share some thoughts on, on Thomas the Apostle. Help us, help us maybe frame him a little better and, uh, and how the Savior saw him. And and maybe this will be kind of a lesson to those who both have doubts as well as those who maybe pass unfair judgments on those who have doubts and questions. Sure. Um, I think Thomas got a bum rap, so to speak, over the centuries, uh, leading many to think that uh, if we are like him, are, are weak and deficient in some way if we have doubts. But 
If you read the story carefully, you realize that the Savior himself acknowledged Thomas's need to know, and he lovingly gave him what he needed so he could believe. He didn't just um, chastise him or or uh, kind of ignore him at all. He came to him and he said, "He said, come and, and feel my side, feel the prince, and and then believe once you do." He knew that Thomas needed a little more meat on the bone, as I like to put it, uh, which doubters sometimes need something more tangible to help their faith be stronger. And uh, Christ acknowledged that Thomas was one of these people. He needed to know. He needed to see for himself. Elder Uchtdorf um, said this. He said, Inquiry is the birthplace of testimony. Some might feel embarrassed or unworthy because they are, have searching questions regarding the gospel, but they needn't feel that way. Asking questions isn't a sign of weakness. It's a precursor of growth. And I love that because Thomas had questions, and because he followed through, he found his answers, he was able to grow. And the interesting thing is, too, and I want to say this to people who who have a tendency to leave or who have left or, or want to leave the church, remember that Thomas hung around. When he was not there, when the Savior first visited the disciples after his resurrection, after he had risen, Thomas wasn't there, so he wouldn't believe. He said, until I see for myself, I won't believe. Well, eight days later is when the Savior appeared again, and this time Thomas was there. And so the thing I want to point out is that Thomas hung around. For eight days, he, he didn't leave. He didn't say, I, I'm not buying this, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, my faith has been tested enough that I'm just going to walk away. He stayed, and he kept at it until he got what he needed to believe. And so I think that's a real lesson for all of us to, if we have doubts, to realize that that's okay. Uh, and that if we hang around long enough, if we, if we push for answers, if we look with the right heart, we're going to find them. What about your thoughts towards those who are aware of others who have doubts? And here's my fear. Often when somebody is struggling in the faith and asking tough questions, we want to sometimes label them maybe as an apostate or or as a dissenter in the church. Or if they choose to leave the church, we'll say things like, well... You know, maybe they wanted to, to go have fun and sin, or maybe they lacked faith, or maybe they should have read their scriptures more, or prayed harder. Um, and I know that on some level, you know, praying and reading scriptures is certainly an important part of the formula, but maybe share with us some thoughts on how it's, it's just not that simple. Okay. Um, yeah, I, th- I don't think there's probably not a member of the church a- around that doesn't know somebody, uh, oftentimes in their own families who struggle with doubt. Uh, about the gospel and about God. And, and so I would think that, that just because of that, that they would have a more, a more empathetic approach to these people. But as you point out, that's not always the case. And sometimes they think they're being empathetic by saying, you know, you need to pray a little more and, and, uh, read your scriptures and, and so forth. And unfortunately, that just doesn't help people who have probably done that and just didn't get completely out of it what they needed to or what other people get out of it because we're all different. And um, and so, yeah, it's important for, for those of us who know the other people who are doubting to do what the Savior did. Maybe help provide them with answers, you know? I mean, sometimes it takes an awful lot of energy to research and find out for yourself answers to some of these tough questions. And a lot of times those who doubt just don't have the will, the strength, the energy. They're just 
they're just kind of depressed by the whole thing. And uh, and so maybe you, as someone who loves them and cares about them, do some work for them. You know, find find some answers and then sit down with them and say, I know you're struggling. I have a someone in my family who who had a, a real difficult thing happen in his life. And as a result, he has a lot of animosity and blame for the church for some of the things that he has gone through. And he's, he, um, he doesn't just kind of walk away quietly and say, ah, oh, I'm not buying this. I blame the church for this and that. He's very openly antagonistic, um, to anybody who will listen and researches like crazy, uh, information that's to the contrary of, uh, gospel teachings, uh, in an effort to disprove the church. And, that's a tough one because you find yourself when you try to help a person like that, you find yourself being drawn into some some negative conversations that can be that can end up being very combative uh, or have the nature to be combative, and we know that that doesn't help because that only brings on the spirit of Satan and not that of of the Holy Ghost. So those are tough ones, and and um, I think you have to be careful which waters you step into in trying to help somebody. But certainly those who who just have doubts and it makes them sad and depressed and, uh, you know, help them out. You find some answers and sit down with them. Yeah. And I, I think all too often we just, we sometimes make the, the quick reaction, which is to assume that, you know, somebody who's having these kinds of struggles is not aware of the gospel in the rich way that we are, or they're not aware of spiritual experiences that we've had. But I know Elder Marlon Jensen talked about in regards to those who are leaving the church or who are struggling deeply with doubts, um, he, he agreed with the idea that they're our best and brightest. And I often think that for someone to, to get into this kind of a crisis of faith where they're really thinking about all these kinds of questions that we're talking about today, that they've, they've done a lot of work on their own end. I mean, they're, it's not like they just threw in the towel the first problem that came up and said, sorry, it's, it's that they're keep, they keep going back and trying to find answers, but Wherever they're searching, or maybe at the level at which they're searching, they're not there. And I want to share a thought. I just thought of this. I sent an email out this morning to somebody who wrote me who was having some testimony troubles. And I, I think it speaks to the problem, and, and maybe it'll be an insight for listeners. So I wrote to this guy. I said, there's a phenomenon in the in the Mormon faith when we talk about faith crisis. And I said this. I said, take an average ward, 140 active attending members. Let's assume that 95% of them are unaware or simply don't care to, to look at the deeper issues. Of the 5%, let's call them seekers, and I, and I realize that not you know not just those who have doubts are seekers, I realize there are seekers in wards, but let's just assume that 5%, they're seekers. They like to read and study and ponder historical information. They simply won't believe nonsense, and they would rather chase down truth no matter what the conclusion is. That 5%, they begin searching, and as they do, they find lots of conflicting information that creates a barrier to faith. Now think about how that feels, that essentially the more I look below the surface of Mormonism, the less and less I'm able to believe its claims. I read more, this is a quote from, this would be like a quote from what they would say, I read more than all of them and it causes my faith to diminish. If they read as much as I did, their faith would diminish too. And I, and I remember being in my crisis and thinking that, but here's the trick. I said, this is scary. One is faced with the idea that if they keep reading, everything they hold will fall apart. That the more they read, the more they will discover the church deceived them. But here's the phenomenon. 
There comes a point that the more you read and study, you hit a mark where rather than losing everything, you begin to move back towards faith. And I, I know that you've obviously found that to be true because you've got just tons of research in here. And, and obviously at one point you had questions as you're having these doubts over these deeper questions. But as you have talked about and as your life is an example of, Nancy, it's it's apparent that if we just take the time to just continue to dig further rather than saying, oh, if I dig more, it's even going to get worse but rather give it a chance to even go further down and at some point kind of hit the gold that lays there. I agree. In fact, um, I point out an example uh, by a fellow named Don Bradley, who was a, an editor and researcher that specializes in Mormonism. And he tells his story where he left the church uh, because at one point in his life, he put more weight on intellectual processes than spiritual ones during his study of early church history. But he came back and he re-examined the historical evidence that he had let damage his testimony. This time, he looked at it through the eye of faith and said he focused on everything that is virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. That's how he pursued it the second time around, was through this eye of faith. If we pursue answers to our questions, like you're talking about, we continue to to search it out and find answers. If we do it with that eye of faith, we do it with that kind of focus, it will alleviate doubt because the spirit will be behind us. We'll be doing it with the desire to know. When I wrote this book, I didn't, I didn't approach it with the idea, oh, I'm going to discredit the church and I'm going to find out all this stuff that, that tells me it's not true and that there is no God. No, I approached it wanting to find answers to help me know that it was true, to help me draw closer to my Heavenly Father and know that He is true and really lives. So, so yeah, study it out, go for it, but do it with the right attitude. Ah, and then we go back to optimism builds faith. True. Yeah. True. And and for the listeners who don't know Don Bradley, uh, I've had a chance to uh, to meet him and to to serve on a uh, uh, to speak with him. When I'm trying to think what I want to describe. It was a a, a little discussion roundtable that we had for a Fair Mormon conference. And uh, neat guy. The the interesting thing in his having left the church, essentially became an atheist, and then worked his way back into faith, his faith became cemented in the restored gospel while he was serving as a research assistant for Brian Hales and delving into all the nitty-gritty ins and outs of Joseph Smith's polygamy. And that topic tends to give a lot of people trouble, but here's a guy who's diving into the original source material and his testimony is is becomes rock solid as he's doing so. And so I think you're right, Nancy. The, the, just keep studying, but you have to do it with the positive attitude. I want to ask you this. How many people out there are struggling? Do we know statistically how many are having doubts? I know in your book you talk a little bit about this data. Would you mind sharing with the listeners uh, what we know about who in the church has questions? Um, There's a a place in my book that does talk about some statistics that uh, the Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion and Public Life put out. Uh, This was uh, in a landmark Mormons in America study that was done in 2012. And what they found out was that um, among those identifying themselves as Mormons, 77%, quote, believe wholeheartedly in all the teachings of the church. That number increases among those who attended college, 
um, and goes even higher among those who are college graduates. But that's still a pretty good chunk of those who have trouble. It said 22% indicated that some teachings of the LDS Church are hard for me to believe. That number goes down uh, with increased education. Just 14% of LDS college graduates in the survey listed some doubts. But the survey also indicated that other Latter-day Saints feel frustration over items they find on the Internet that don't coincide with what they've been taught. Um, Latter-day Saints who struggle with doubt should realize that they're not alone. And they're not alone in probably fairly good-sized numbers. I have to tell you, in the short two months that this book has been out on the market, and I have had conversations with people who have read it, um, many of which are in my own ward right now, they all, they've all told me, I struggle. There are things I don't understand in the gospel. There are things I wish I could have a, be more solid in my mind with regard to my relationship to God, you know, whether he exists, whether there is an afterlife. Um, yet they go to church every Sunday. They teach their lessons. They um, hold their callings. They magnify their callings. They have family home meetings in their homes. And yet they struggle like you and I did. Um, but maybe they're not in this Pew Institute research uh, statistics. And and yet they still have those same problems. So I think you're going to find that there's more people out there who question than you realize. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking about about the idea of those who, you know, you said 77%, which means there's 33% who on some level are are, are having a struggle. And that 23%. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the original stat was 77% of... Uh, of Latter-day Saints believe wholeheartedly in all the teachings of the church, which means there's 33% who have some level of disagreement or see conflict. And among that group, there's the 20-something percent who who have questions they don't feel they've got good answers to. And I just, I think about all the people out there who are, who are having uh, who are having a hard time and who have doubts of one sort of another. And I just, I just appreciate greatly, uh, books like yours. And I'll also mention, uh, Michael Ash's Shaken Face Syndrome, which I've talked to him on the podcast before. I think your book and his book are really the only two I've seen. It's a unique, a unique stance that the two of you have taken, which is one, to both offer information, but number two, to also tackle bad assumptions and to help people change the way in which they think about ideas. And so I, I absolutely applaud you, uh, Nancy, for the way in which you've written this book. I want to kind of wrap up asking a few questions that come towards the end of the book. And one of them is the spiritual value of evidence. And uh, here's here's what I wanted to, to ask about. Um, what kinds of evidence is there and, and how does that come to us? And are we all the same in that regard? And and I'll let you talk, and then I've got a few thoughts I want to add in, too, to see what you think. Okay, Um. yeah, evidence, you know, I, when I first started this, I kept using, or I thought about using the word proof, you know, proof that God, but there's no way, there, there's no proof. This That would take away the purpose of life and, and how we're supposed to walk by faith and learn and grow in our um uh, steps that we take along the way, but there is evidence. Um, take, you know, I, I pursue a lot of evidence through science, but if you just even look at the world around you, as I talk about in the in the beginning, that um, things like uh, photosynthesis, um, that is an amazing scientific true fact that is part of our world. There's if you look at photosynthesis, it's a the staggering organization and complexity evident in this process um, 
screams that it had to have been designed. Uh, things like uh, water. Um, as we study the Earth's complexities, perhaps the most important creation to sustain life is water and, and all that it does. Water carries throughout the body various substances, including food, medicines, and minerals, while leaving those substances unchanged. Um, it does all kinds of things. The Earth, the fact that the Earth is... Uh, if the Earth were not at the distance it is from the Sun, it would not be capable of supporting much of life as we know it. it. The Earth remains this perfect distance from the Sun while it revolves around it at a speed of nearly 67,000 miles per hour. Um, it also rotates on its axis, ensuring the appropriate amount of warming and cooling each day. So you can just look outside and see the things we do know, without a doubt, about our, our Earth that are evidence that it had to have been created by a supreme being. So that's certain kinds of evidence. Um, but we have a lot of spiritual evidence and the spiritual phenomenon that we experience through things like near-death experiences and visitations from the other side and, and miracles. My goodness. Throughout the book, I try to throw in actual stories from people who have experienced some of these things so that we can see uh, firsthand from their experiences that miracles do happen, that there really is an afterlife, that there is a veil that separates us, but that those people on the other side do come from time to time to help us. And um, and the fact that we have prophets on the earth and a church that allows us to grow and increase and become the kind of people someday that might return to our Father in Heaven, um, to me these are all evidences of God. Excellent. I wanna, I wanna kind of wrap up here asking maybe just a couple of questions. Towards the end of, uh, that chapter, Help Thou Mine Unbelief, uh, in the, the section Help for the Doubting Thomas, you, you speak of paradigms, and I don't know that you give it that word, but, but kind of knowing what you're talking about, I wanted to hit on a couple of things that you say. You say it's, it's confusing to say the least. While truth can be found in a number of places, we must remain ever vigilant that Satan may be twisting things just enough to set us on the wrong path. And I think that's important, and I think that happens in a multitude of ways. I, I think that when when leaders talk at the local ward, a bishop or a uh, primary president or a young women's president or, or a teacher in the primary or the nursery leader or the counselor in young men's, we often, when we say things, we'll, we may not have a great grasp of what doctrine is or isn't, and we'll speak in ways that kind of, as I pointed out earlier, draws lines in the sand for people. That sometimes can be a way in which those of us listening to those things can kind of set up a false paradigm that someday when we find better information, there will be a conflict there. I think the other thing, too, is when we look on the other side of the coin, often when we encounter a problem, if if we go to listen to what the critics have to say, they've got their own biases as well. I, I just feel like, I know in the midst of my crisis... There was a point where I almost trusted the critics more than the church in listening to what the opinions and thoughts were. And I think that feels natural when all of a sudden the way in which you see your faith is different based on new information. There's this natural tendency to feel like somebody hid something from you or somebody was dishonest with you. And so then you go to the other the other side of that conclusion and you look at those who have to offer advice and thoughts and they're you know they're essentially seconding that oh yeah the church was dishonored or yeah they hid that from you mm-hmm. and and you'll tend to kind of put more validation on what they're saying 
and I think it's, it's just a, it's, I know it's hard and it's difficult and it doesn't feel natural to do this, but here's what I, I kind of word it as. We often discover new information and that new information, let's just assume that they're facts. Those facts don't fit with our current belief system, but we feel a natural need to make them fit. And if the facts won't fit, then we, we feel like we have to throw it all out. But in reality, rather than changing the facts to fit the, our belief system, we ought to just be more flexible in changing our belief system to adjust to the facts. So as you pointed out earlier, learning about the Garden of Eden and some of the figurative or allegorical statements that early leaders have made, it would be easy to say, nope, I believe in a literal creation in Garden of Eden, and even though I'm encountering information that opposes that, I'm simply going to hold on to it, and uh-oh, I've, now I'm reading leaders saying this, now i got to throw it all out. Well, no, you don't have to throw it all out. You can change the way in which you've structured how you understand that idea or that scripture or that principle or that doctrine to, to suit new truth as it comes in. Uh, is that kind of the same way you see it? Absolutely. Um and again, it's all a matter of uh, how much, uh, how how we go about it. What's the attitude? What's the focus with which we go about learning truth? If we we can all um, kind of stumble on something that does create a paradigm shift for us, uh, as we're searching the internet or whatever, or we hear something from somebody, or like you said, you know, even in Sunday school, people people will have some kind of a a different twist on things, and that can really um, upset the apple cart, so to speak, in our testimonies. But if we if we learn that it's okay to change things up in a way that does not detract or take away or negate the actual doctrine, but helps us to uh, interpret it and internalize it in a way that makes sense for us and helps our testimony to grow... Um, Tom David B. Marsh, and I bring this out in the book, he's a curriculum manager in the church's priesthood department. He once offered a, a doctrinal safety net or a doctrinal safety test to use as a guide while searching out information. The test consists of four questions, and these are, one, is it a pattern in the scriptures? Two, do the living prophets and apostles teach it? Three, is it in harmony with current practices and approved policies of the church? And four, does the Spirit testify to me of its truthfulness? Okay, so two things I want to point out. Again, if it's not a doctrine of the church, you know, then you really are free to to get from it, take from it what will help increase your individual faith. And that's where his fourth uh, part of the test comes into play. Does the Spirit testify to me of its truthfulness? You, we, We're a kind of a... Um, an enigma in religion in that church members are actually encouraged to find out for themselves. We're not asked to blindly accept something that's given to us by a church leader, but to find out, to get a testimony, to get a witness of the Spirit for ourselves. And that's what we need to do in every single piece of information that we come upon or or that we know that we that's a part of the church culture but still doesn't resonate quite well with us. We can find out for ourselves through our own spiritual witness if it's okay for us to have this particular bent, you know. We can take that the story of Noah and the ark and and it's okay to say that yeah, it may have been a local situation. You know, maybe it wasn't quite what the scriptures seem to say it was literally. And if we feel good about that, if it builds our faith, if it, you know, then it's okay. Then that's okay to do. I love that. Nancy Fippen Brown is the author of Help Thou Mine Unbelief. Nancy, where can people find your book? 
They can find it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. And, uh, I'm, I'm, right now I'm working on with a distributor to get it into Siegel Book. Uh, that may be another month or so away. Uh, but, but it's also available on Amazon as a Kindle, in a Kindle version. That's great. I will, uh, I'll link both of those, uh, sites that, uh, you can get, uh, your book at so that listeners as they're listening can pick your book up, uh, and get to it easily to, uh, to make, uh, that purchase. It's just a wonderful book. I really appreciate, uh, Nancy, you being on today. Uh, Nancy Fippen Brown, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of god he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood washed linen how I'll sing thy sovereign grace come my Lord no longer tarry take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above